you have probably heard the phrase believing prayer. And then in the Bible, we read the phrase, the prayer of faith in James chapter 5. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So the prayer of faith and believing prayer are synonymous. And I read those two phrases during my study time. And I just began to think about them, and I had to ask myself, what kind of prayer characterizes my life as a Christian? Is my life simply characterized by prayer or by believing prayer? Was I engaging on a regular basis in believing prayer? Say, so, well, what's the other kind of prayer? Well, uh, there's prayer that Jesus described as simply being empty phrases. And if we're not careful, we can all kind of fall into this trap where we really don't give much thought to our prayers. And if we would record ourselves praying and play it back over the space of several days, we might be shocked to find that we say the same things in the same way repeatedly. So the prayer really has become nothing more than a simple formula. Now, when I talk about believing prayer and prayer, I don't think it's a difference without a distinction. I do believe, and my belief is based upon the Scriptures, that it is possible to faithfully pray, and yet our prayers receive no answer. Our prayers rarely, if ever, accomplish anything at all. And again, it's, it's, our prayers are similar to what Jesus described as the Gentiles engage in. Empty phrases. They think that they are heard for the volume of their words or the quantity of their words rather than the quality of their words. So we would be very wise to examine our own prayer lives and ask if our prayers are prayed in faith. Do our prayers rest upon a foundation of faith? Now, not faith in ourselves that we are saying the exact right words and asking for the exact right things and saying them in exactly the right way, though those things are important, but rather faith in the one we are praying to. Do we have faith that God hears us and go beyond that and say, do we have faith that God actually desires to answer our prayers? Think about this. Jesus said in Matthew 21, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So believing prayer, or we've talked about prevailing prayer, say, where does that begin? It begins, first of all, with a desire to pray, and it is carried forward with a desire to learn more about prayer. And aren't you glad that the, in the Scriptures we find much instruction as to how we can pray in a very powerful and a very productive way. 
So this morning, I'm going to continue to examine what the Bible says about prayer. Let me give you a couple quotes as food for thought. They've been helpful to me. R.A. Torrey wrote in his book, The Power of Prayer and the Prayer of Power. He said, I wish to do my utmost to restore that mighty weapon to the hands of the church and to stir you up to use this weapon in mighty and victorious onslaught on Satan and his forces. Now, what is the mighty weapon that he's talking about? It is the mighty weapon of prevailing prayer. Now, beloved, that is my goal. What his stated goal was over a century ago is my goal for us as a church. I want us to be a church. You know, there's a difference between believing in something and actually doing it. Amen? We can say that we believe in prevailing prayer, but do we practice prevailing prayer? And my goal is to help us reach the point to where, yes, we believe in prevailing prayer, but more than that, we practice prevailing prayer. We pray with confidence. We pray with faith. We pray with boldness because our God is omnipotent and he delights to answer the prayers of his children. Tori also said, it is ours to have the power of God if we will only seek it by prayer in any and every line of service to which God calls us. Now, that's an important statement. Tori is saying, listen, the kind of prayer that prevails is not just for pastors or evangelists or those of professional types. What he's saying is, regardless of your station in life, regardless of where God has placed you, regardless of your employment, regardless of any of those circumstances, you can have the power of God in that area of your life, the area to which God has called you. We need to believe that. You know, uh, John Knox was a thorn in the side of Mary, uh, Queen of Scots, the Queen of England. She really wanted to kill him. But she said she feared the prayers of John Knox more than she feared all the armies of Scotland. Wouldn't you like to be known for that kind of praying? You say, well, he was John Knox. He was one of the reformers. Of course, he's going to pray that way. I can find no place in Scripture where powerful prayer is limited to the, the spiritually famous. Nowhere. It's the average Christian. It's the ordinary Christian. It's, it's the bulk of the Christian world who is instructed that you can pray this way. You can be like Elijah. You can get down on your knees, and God will hear you. And in Elijah's case, what did he pray for? No rain. For three and a half years, there was no rain. He prayed again, and there was rain. And James, James seems to labor the point. He, he wants us to understand. He says, hey, Elijah was a man just like you all. 
And if Elijah could see that kind of results, that kind of power in prayer, so too can you. The problem is convincing ourselves that's true. But here's the thing. We have no evidence in the Scriptures contrary to that. There's nowhere in the Scriptures that, were, that, that God says, you know, uh, you know, I gave this kind of uh, a prayer life to, yeah, to Knox and to Moses and to Paul and, and them fellers, but uh, the rest of you, you just got to muddle by. No. No, nowhere like that. Well, our text for this morning should be a familiar one to us, if for no other reason. The last time I preached, I preached from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 which in many ways is uh, like the, the passage here in Luke chapter 11. Now, the two passages, they are similar, but they are different. And the two differences that we're going to highlight this morning are important and they are instructive as we continue to learn about the power and the potential of our praying. Let me give you a, a, a statement that I'd like you to chew on for a while. Prayer is the privilege God gives to his children that allows them access to his omnipotence. Prayer is a privilege that God gives to his children that allows them access to his omnipotence. Let me remind you of a quote that I read last week in prayer meeting from R.A. Torrey again. He said, prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer, but we must use the key. And this is what I said last week in the prayer meeting. Prayer can do anything that God can do. And as God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. Again, I ask you, do you believe that? And if you don't, would you give me evidence from the scriptures why you don't? If I'm an heir, please tell me. And really what I'm wanting to do is to keep us all from jumping off the hook. perhaps we've not seen much response to our prayer lives. And after a while, let's be honest, it gets discouraging. And so while we may give lip service to the power of prayer, we may give lip service to the potential of prayer, down deep inside where nobody sees but God, we don't really think that our prayers are going to accomplish anything. And guess what? If you think that way, your prayers are not going to accomplish anything. Beloved, do you realize the tremendous power that you have at your disposal and that you have unlimited and unhindered access to? It's through prayer. Now, it's important to note that this passage here in Luke chapter 11 begins with the disciples observing the prayer life of Jesus. And once Jesus had finished praying, one of the disciples, he is not named, he approaches Jesus with a request that must have been thrilling and heartwarming for Jesus to hear. You say, well, what was the request? He said, Lord, teach us to pray. He wanted Jesus to teach them to pray just like he prayed. That's a tremendous sentiment, isn't it? That's a tremendous desire. Here's my first observation from this passage. Here it is. Find a mentor to help you develop your prayer life. Find a mentor to help you develop your prayer life. 
It could be the writings of those men and women of years gone by whose lives were characterized by the kind of prayer that we're talking about, the kind of prayer that we see in the Scriptures. Find a mentor. Maybe it's someone that you know personally. That's all well and good. But I would highly encourage you, if you need some some recommendations on some good books on prayer, come and see me. I, I sat down last night, and just in my Kindle library, I think I had six books on prayer. And I've got more than that in print, I'm sure. And I'm inspired by them. I'm instructed by them. I keep a book on my desk at all times to read about prayer. So find you a mentor. Could be somebody, a friend of yours, whoever it may be. Of course, the best mentor would be to study the prayer life of the Lord Jesus and see what he has to say. So the implication here is clear. And the implication is you can be taught to pray in a way that is powerful and effective. We can learn to pray as Jesus did. I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but do you believe that? Do you believe that? So the disciple approached Jesus with what was a simple request, but it would have profound implications not only for them, but for all of the Lord's disciples. And again, he simply said, Lord, teach us to pray. So how does the Lord Jesus respond to this disciple? Well, he immediately launches into a master class on prayer. So what are we to take away from this? Here it is. The takeaway is our Lord's willingness to teach us, to give us solid direction and clear instruction concerning prayer. The Lord didn't say to this disciple, hey, you're a bright feller. Figure it out. You'll get there. Just wing it for a while and it'll all come together. No. He doesn't do anything like that. What does he do? He immediately launches into this master class on prayer. He was honored by that request. And he was going to honor that request. And he teaches them about prayer. So what does he teach them? He taught them what some people like to refer to as the Lord's Prayer, and I guess that's fine. I prefer to refer to it as the disciple's prayer or the prayer of a genuine disciple. And so he begins to teach them uh, that prayer. I've mentioned this before, but Martin Luther wrote a very helpful guide to uh, Peter, his barber, who found himself in a spot of trouble. And it's called A Simple Way to Pray. And what Martin Luther does in that little booklet is that he walks, Peter the barber, how to pray through the Lord's Prayer as well as how to pray through the Ten Commandments. It is very, very, very helpful. And you can find it on Amazon, uh, the, the Kindle version. I think it's 99 cents. It's not going to break the bank. But it is worth its weight uh, ten times over or more. So he, Luther could be... Uh, your mentor in prayer. Now, please understand, when I recommend something like this, I am not saying this is to replace your words. This, this is not to, to constitute the entirety of your prayer life, but rather it is a helpful guide to kickstart your prayer life in some instances, if you will. Again, I highly recommend it. 
Luther could be one of your mentors. Another observation is this. The response of Jesus to the request of the disciple shows us that Jesus not only wants us to pray, but he wants us to pray properly. And why does he want us to pray properly? Because he knows the power of prayer. He knows the potential of prayer. He knows that prayer is the means through which the Father's will is accomplished here on earth. Prayer is the means by which sinners are brought to salvation. And prayer is the means by which Christians are brought to Christ's likeness. Prayer is the means that lays hold of all of the promises that God makes to his children. So after Jesus teaches them this prayer, what I believe is a stroke of genius, he immediately illustrates for them what happens when they put his teaching about prayer into practice. He shows them a very specific application of what happens when they pray, and thereby, thereby doing that, he incentivizes them in their prayer lives as well as motivating them in their prayer lives. Now, what we see here is similar to what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. But this time, he puts a question to them. And the purpose of the question, like the purpose of most questions, is to engage their minds, to get them thinking about what he's saying to them. He wants them to understand the basics of prayer as well as the base, excuse me, the basis of prayer as well as the results of prayer. So Jesus uses a human illustration to reveal a divine reality. And I believe that as we properly understand what Jesus teaches us here, our understanding that we gain will skyrocket our confidence in prayer and show us that biblical prayer has absolutely no limitations. So where's the illustration? Well, let's look at verses 5, 6, and 7. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now notice, it ends with a question mark. Why the question mark? Why not an exclamation point? I believe the question mark is there because Jesus asked this question to provoke a reaction from the disciples. Say, well, what's the point? Well, a little bit of cultural context is helpful here because in the, the day and age in which Jesus lived, hospitality was highly valued. In fact, it was considered an obligation that if a weary traveler showed up at your door, you had an obligation to provide food and lodging and rest. And so in this parable that Jesus relates to the disciples, he tells them that, hey, a weary traveler has shown up at a man's door. And he goes, this man has nothing to give to him and so he goes to his neighbor and can you believe it this neighbor because he's beaten on his door he said i'm not going to give up and give you get you give you anything 
So that would have provoked a reaction in the disciples of saying, well, how dare this guy? So we need to go a little bit farther in our understanding. Now, bread has always been a staple of our diets, but in the time in which Jesus lived, it was more than just a part of the meal. It was used much in the same way that we would use a, a spork, a spork. I knew I was going to say that, a spoon and a fork today, right? So they would use it to dip and sop and whatever they needed to do in order to eat the meal. But this man didn't have any bread, <coughs> excuse me, but he was determined to do the right thing. He was determined to show hospitality to the one who showed up at his house at midnight. So he went to his friend and he asked him to lend him three loaves. So Jesus begins his illustration with the words, which of you has a friend? Notice that the emphasis in this instance appears to be on the friend, not on the one doing the asking. Jesus follows that up with, friend, lend me three loaves. Now, here's why I highlight this. Because in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, the emphasis there clearly was on us and our persistence in asking. It was on our asking, our seeking. It was on our knocking. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was clearly emphasizing the need for us to be persistent in prayer. But in this instant, instance, excuse me, Jesus is expanding on prayer to include vital information about the one to whom we are praying to. The friend whose door is knocked on and asked to lend three loaves represents God the Father. And our Father can and He does supply all of our needs. When we lack, when we have a need, where do we go? We go to our Heavenly Father. Who is it that we pray to? We pray to our Heavenly Father. Now, remember that Jesus has taught them that as they pray, they pray to their Father. Let's back up to verses 2 and 3. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. So we are to ask our Heavenly Father for our daily bread. And what, what is it that is asked of the Father in this passage, of the friend in this passage? Bread. He asked for three loaves of bread. Now notice something here. He's very specific in his asking. We've talked about this before. When we pray, we need to pray specifically. It's not that God doesn't know what we need, but we need to be very specific in our prayers. It's one of the ways that we know that our prayers are being answered, that our prayers are being heard. If we continue to pray these very general prayers, these very vague prayers, eh, who knows? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But he asked very specifically. Now notice, this man did not ask his friend if he had three loaves. Did he? He knocked on his door expecting him to have three loaves. And he also expected him to give him three loaves. 
You say, what are you trying to point out? I'm trying to point out that he went with a sense of expectancy and confidence. He expected his friend to have the three loaves, and he was confident that his friend would give him the three loaves. Likewise, when you and I pray, when we go to our Heavenly Father, we go, we should go, we have no reason not to go, we should go with expectancy. And we should also, at the same time, go with confidence. Because I know that my God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. I, I know that. I expect him to have what I need and therefore, I'm confident that he will give me what I need. Now, certainly, there's an element of relationship here. Jesus begins by instructing us that when we pray, we're praying to our Father. And then he ends this passage by saying in verse 13, look at verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he bookends this teaching with what? information about the Father, the relationship that all of God's children have with their Heavenly Father. But I believe there's something else here that Jesus wants us to see. Jesus says, yes, when you pray, your prayers are based upon the relationship that you have with God as your Father, but there's an element about God that has a profound impact on your prayers. In fact, it's something of tremendous importance to God, and it's something that will greatly encourage us in our own prayer lives. So what are you talking about? Well, let's read verse 8 together. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, the word impudence here means shamelessness, shamelessness. Now, there are two views concerning this passage. One view is that it's in the spirit of Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, that Jesus is trying again to teach the disciples and us about persistence in prayer. So they would say the impudent one is the one who's doing the asking. But the problem is that in this parable, the man is hardly persistent. He only asks one time. As one commentator says, if this is supposed to be like the Christian who is persistent and this man who is not persistent, then God comes across as a grouchy and unhappy neighbor who resents being bothered. Do you think that's what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples? I don't think so. Then there are others who say, no, the word impudence, which means shamelessness, refers to the one who is being asked and not the one doing the asking. So the word shamelessness in this context refers to the sense of honor of the one being asked and not the one doing the asking. So let's reread verse 8, and in place of impudence, let's substitute the word honor. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his 
honor, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I believe the second meaning is the correct interpretation. That Jesus was trying to teach them something about the honor of God as it relates to prayer. Jesus wants them to understand that it is the honor of the one being asked that is on the line here. We could say it this way. He is duty-bound to respond to the man's plea for bread. So in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, the emphasis there very clearly is on our persistence in prayer. Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount, he's clearly emphasizing the need for for us to ask, seek, and knock, and to continually do so. But here in Luke chapter 11, the emphasis is is on the honor of the Father as it pertains to answered prayer. And after all, there are so many promises in Scripture about God answering prayer. For God not to keep His promises would be what? Dishonorable and perish the thought. It's not a possibility. 2 Peter 1.4, By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The only way we, we become partakers of the divine nature is through the promises of God. Psalm 91, 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. When he calls to me, I will answer him. Any way you slice it, that is a promise of God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The verse doesn't end there, does it? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're anxious, what are you instructed to do? You are to pray. And what does God promise to do in response to your prayers? Give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. As one commentator said, the Lord's honor is on the line when a Christian prays. See, God answers our prayer not because of our character, not because of our reputation. God answers prayer because of his reputation, because of his honor. He's duty-bound. He's made these promises. He will always be faithful to himself and to his word. Which brings us back that we have every reason to be confident when we pray. Listen to what God said through the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Call to me and I might answer. It just depends on what mood I'm in that day. No, call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things that you don't know. See, it's the promises of God. It's it's the character of God. It's the It's the honor of God that's at stake here when we pray and we claim these promises. Now notice what Jesus says we should do based upon the honor of God. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now it's the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. 
But what I want to emphasize here this morning is that Jesus extends this invitation to us. It's an open invitation to us to do what? To ask, to seek, and to knock. He's encouraging us to pray. And our encouragement is not based on nothing. It's based on what? The character of God. The honor of God. That's why we pray with confidence. So we have a standing and open invitation to ask, to seek, and to knock. And I hope you've begun to implement that in your own life. Then we have the promises of verses 10 through 13. Look at 10 through 13 with me. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Please pay attention to what Jesus believes about the Father. He believes the Father is what? Is a good Father. And a good Father will give good gifts to his children and... No one knows the Father better than the Son. See that? So if Jesus teaches us that our Heavenly Father is good, we have no reason to doubt that. Therefore, we have no reason to not go to Him in prayer. None at all. All of our excuses are exploded. They're left as a big hole in the ground. Empty, worthless. You do not have because you do not ask. Now notice what Jesus promises the Father would give to those who ask, seek, and knock. It's really not a what, but rather it's a who. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And compare this to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 11, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is heaven give good things to those who ask him? Well, now we have very specifically, we know what part of the good things are. And really, I think it's the good thing. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, i got to be honest with you. This verse, like many in Scripture, amen, has befuddled me for a long time. And I first came across this verse in some of Martin Lloyd-Jones' teaching. And the good doctor, at whatever point I was reading him, he didn't really go into it and explain the, the verse, though I desperately wish that he had. But he would frequently mention this verse. And so, again, when I began to study all this, I was still kind of at a loss as to what exactly does this mean? Now, you know... I think it has something to do with drawing people to Christ. I firmly believe that. But you have to keep in mind, who was Jesus teaching here? He was teaching his disciples. He was teaching his disciples. So, thinking about this literally for years on and off, 
and reading as much about it as I could, I've come to the conclusion that what Jesus means here is that we can ask the Father to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But sadly and tragically, not all Christians live according to the fullness of the Spirit. If they did, then there would have been no need for Paul's instruction in Ephesians to give us that command to, to what? To be filled with the Spirit. Too many of us believers, whether it's because of the charismatic movement that we are afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit, or simply because there's been such poor teaching about the Holy Spirit, we shy away from the Holy Spirit. I read years ago, this, this one author said, the Holy Spirit is the orphaned member of the Trinity. That's so true. But just because the Holy Spirit is abused by some, we cannot let that rob us of the good gift that, the, that our Heavenly Father wants to give to us. So Jesus couldn't be any more clear here. Ask, seek, knock. So, well, what does this look like in relation to experiencing the fullness of the Spirit? Here's what I think it is. Number one, it begins with a desire. I've told some of you this story before, being raised in fundamentalism. I didn't know that there really was a Holy Spirit. I went to the same church from the time I was four or five years of age until I was... In my 30s. And I can count on one finger the sermons I heard about the Holy Spirit. And it was by a visiting evangelist. And all I remember about the visiting evangelist is he had a, he had a and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not poking fun or anything, he had a Polish last name. But that was contrasted with the Western-style suit and cowboy boots that he, that he wore, and it was a light blue suit. And the first words out of his mouth in this very conservative fundamentalist church was, Good morning, Holy Spirit. Well, we all looked up waiting for the roof to fall. <laughs> and I've told Jeff and others this story. I, I mean, I, when I was in Bible school, I knew there was something missing in my life. It wasn't that I was doubting my salvation, but I knew there had to be more to the Christian life than what I was getting out of it. And I, didn't, I, I wasn't trying to be selfish. I knew I wanted to be like Christ. I knew I wanted to grow in holiness. But human effort wasn't getting the job done. And so that's when I went out and began my exploration about what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit and thanked the good Lord Jesus for John MacArthur because I came across a study series that he did. It was titled, Whatever Happened to the Holy Spirit? And I said, I need to know that. 
and he had a he had a, a cassette tape. Yes, I'm that old. He had a cassette tape that I played in my Sony Walkman. Amen. And uh, listen to that thing over and over and over again about what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And ever since then, I've been on a quest to make sure that I understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And so now we arrive at this point, and Jesus says, listen, if you ask, if you seek, and you knock, you can experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So ask, I just gave you a long-winded explanation of what it means to ask. So you have a desire. Say, so what's it mean to seek? I think it means you fill yourself with Scripture. You have a desire. You look to satisfy that desire with the Scriptures. Paul says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. And when he gives that, he gives this almost the same exact uh, uh, comparison of what it looks like for a person to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. And I think there's one final step that, that for a long time I didn't understand. That's the knocking. It's showing up at God's door, if you will, and saying, I've asked, I've sought, now I'm knocking. Will you allow me, will you give me the good gift of the fullness of the Holy Spirit? And I wonder how many Christians ever arrive at that point. Now, I'm not trying to put myself up on a pedestal. Please, please uh, don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to do that at all. But I want what is best for you. And an incomplete knowledge of the Holy Spirit benefits no one. But a true understanding of the work and the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit benefits every believer. So that's what I believe that Jesus is teaching here. So that we can experience the fullness of the Spirit in our day-to-day existence. So that now, as I desire to be like Christ, as I desire to grow in holiness, as I desire to grow in sanctification, I know that I have the aid of the Holy Spirit at my disposal. And he wants me to be more like Christ, even more than I want to be like Christ. J.C. Ryle helps us here. He writes, The Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things, life, light, hope, and heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love, God the Son's atoning blood, and full communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Having this gift, we have grace and peace in the world that now is, and glory and honor in the world to come. And yet this mighty gift is held out by our Lord Jesus Christ as a gift to be obtained by prayer. Your Heavenly Father shall give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. To those who ask for the good gift of the Holy Spirit and receive the gift, have access to the omnipotent God Himself. The fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit is available to any believer who will desire it, ask, who will seek it, will fill themselves with Scripture and knock and ask for it. Ask, 
seek and knock. And all the resources that you and I need to become like Christ is available to us through the fullness of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a good gift that the Father desires to give to His children. I wonder, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you want to bring glory to God? Then begin to ask, seek, and knock for the good gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to make an impact in the lives of others? Then begin to ask, begin to seek, begin to knock for the good gift of the Holy Spirit. One more quote from J.C. Ryle, and we'll wrap this up. This is very important. J.C. Ryle said, There are a few passages in the Bible which so completely strip the unconverted man or woman of their common excuse as this passage. They say we are weak and helpless, but do they ask to be made strong? They say they are wicked and corrupt, but do they seek to be made better? They say they can do nothing of themselves, but do they knock at the door of mercy and pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit? These are questions to which many, it may be feared, can make no answer. They are what they are, and this applies to believer and unbeliever alike. They are what they are because they ask not. They will not come to Christ that they may have life, and therefore they remain dead in trespasses and sins. So I close with a simple question. Have you come to Christ so that you may have eternal, abundant life that Jesus' death has made possible? You can have it. If you will come to the Father and ask for his help. And I leave you again with the words of James. You do not have because you do not ask. Thank you.